Welcome to Biotalk. My name is Jeff Meyerson, CEO and co-founder of Locust Walk, and you're listening to Biotalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. As part of Locust Walk's thought leadership in regenerative medicine today, I'm speaking with Howard Federoff, Chief Medical Officer, Scientific Co-Founder, and Director at Ryan Biotechnology. Ryan Bio is a biotech company advancing off-the-shelf neuron replacement therapies as potent disease-modifying treatments for neurological disorders. They're working in a new space where Blue Rock just had some positive clinical data in Parkinson's to validate the approach. Prior to his role at RhineBio, Howard was the CEO of Aspen Neuroscience, where he led the company through a $70 million Series A financing to advance an IPS program targeting Parkinson's disease. Subsequently, as president and CEO of Brooklyn Immunotherapeutics, he executed a pivot into IPSC immuno-oncology. Dr. Federoff is a recognized thought leader and serial entrepreneur in the field of advanced medicines for diseases of the nervous system, focused on the development of gene and cell therapy strategies to interdict pathogenesis. Dr. Federoff has published more than 300 manuscripts, review articles and chapters, and U.S. patents. Welcome to Biotech, Howard. Let's dive in. So, how did you find yourself into the biotech industry? What did you, uh, what prompted you to, to to come in and, and maybe just give us a brief history of, of your background? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm trained as a physician scientist. And um, in addition to seeing patients and running a laboratory, I've often thought that in the academic sphere, it's rare that you can see a linear path from what you do, you're funded to do, and ultimately how you impact the care of patients maybe even rarely seeing a new uh, investigational approach lead to either an NDA or BLA. So early on in my career, I always had a fascination understanding how people were succeeding at that. And um, it took me a while to sort of get up the, uh, I guess, the energies and the momentum with colleagues to figure out that there was technology that I was patenting that may have the possibility of moving into the into the clinic. My first such effort uh, was to co-found a company that you may know of. It's called Medgenesis Therapeutic with uh, three others, because uh, we had been exploring the use of growth factors in the treatment of brain disorders. And so we formed a company, raised some capital, and Medgenesis um, was able to execute a phase to be trial uh, in the United Kingdom, missing its primary endpoint, but it would appear from uh, the scuttlebutt and discussions with many that there may be another hurrah there for protein delivery into the brain. But that was my beginning. And um, you might know that I was involved early in the development of gene therapy vectors, and some of those actually um, could play well into the nervous system because there's this issue of, does it get into the right cell in the right part of the brain? And uh, we had developed some approaches, and ultimately, we spun out another company, which was called Brain Neurotherapy Bio, which was based on AAV2. We executed a clinical trial at the NIH, putting uh, the gene GDNF into the brain. But at the end of the day, I'd have to say that uh, biotech was always a great lure for me, but it took me a while to figure out whether I could step out of academia and into an operating role. Yeah. which I'm pleased to say I have, and it's a totally different life. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's for sure. And it's very interesting that you've pivoted from AAV gene therapy to iPSCs. I'm curious your perspective on one versus the other. Both have had their challenges and, and upside surprises, but 
curious your perspective uh, on those differences. Yeah, so if, if you start with the premise that you want to modify the natural history of disease, then you have to immediately ask, well, what, what are the tools that are available um, and how do you develop a, a path to the clinic that may actually have a reasonable chance of demonstrating slowing of progression? Um, in the work that we were doing in Parkinson's, it was pretty clear that um, it was possible at that time to deliver AV safely, uh, both to visceral organs like the liver and elsewhere, as well as to the brain. And so it was um, much more uh, immediate that we recognize the ability to deliver, uh, and we think still the glial cell-derived uh, neurotrophic factor, GDNF, is really a good choice because it supports the, uh, the still existing dopaminergic neurons in the brain of a Parkinson's patient. However, as they get further in disease, that will not be able to work because the cells are gone. The ones that may have been hibernating can't re rejuvenate, they can't re -innervate. And so that caused my locus of attention to begin to explore stem cells. Um, the stem cell world, as you know very well, is, is extremely interesting in many regards, but uh, at least as I see it, you need to have a very robust starting point, an IPSC, that you can consistently manufacture and ultimately be able to go uh, and satisfy all the non-clinical, pre-clinical, including safety, before you start clinical development. And my best um, chance at being a part of a lot of other people are doing is to figure out how to rewire the brain when you've lost these dopamine neurons in Parkinson's. So I'm in it for the long term. Yeah, no, I, I can tell given you've started two companies in this exact space. Right. So is it a fair framework? I'm just curious to think that gene therapy, maybe perhaps only in, in neurology, is better suited for situations where there's not a, a lack of uh, cellular viability and cell therapy is better where there aren't enough cells that gene therapy can make a difference? Is that how to think about this or is there a different way to... It, yeah, I think there's multiple ways, but certainly what you've just underscored is one, if the intended substrate of the therapy is no longer there, um, or viable, even yeah, or viable. You could safely deliver, but what what would likely be the clinical outcome is probably very modest, if if at all, any significant benefit. Um, however, there are other strategies um, for CNS and other um, you know, uh, visceral gene therapies where you're replacing a lost enzyme. Yeah. So there, it's really a very different you know matter where it's about what vector, what volume of cells can be transduced what kind of volumetric secretion of that particular protein that's lost be, oh, typically owing to inborn errors of metabolism, you know, typically autosomal recessive mutations. Uh, but you will ask the question, at what stage of disease might it be most effective? Enzyme replacement therapy has been great, but it doesn't tend to produce the um, traumatic effects in the CNS. So there may be a place for gene therapy there, the, 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 just the dot, dot, dot to cells and replacement, um, it's pretty clear that you can recapitulate the way the brain builds itself if you have the right starting material, which is a cell that's been positioned along the developmental spectrum to have the potential when put in the brain, notwithstanding the fact that there's already inflammation, it knows what to do 
Yeah. It will undergo division. It will differentiate. It will seek to find the right partner to form a synapse onto, which is remarkable. And it will then function. And so if you could keep going, keep going. Yeah, keep going. Therapy, you capture that in a therapy, you're on your way to having potentially a disease modifying treatment. It's just amazing to think that you can have a cell that will divide in the, the brain and the CNS, know when to stop dividing and actually yes. do what other cells who can't anymore take their place. That's that's just mind blowing. It, it is. It, you know, it also lays the groundwork. Um, although we work in movement disorders and Parkinson's, it lays the groundwork for thinking about this more generally. And I think there's more information that will be needed to figure out how to take on other neurologic indications including some that may be traumatic or acute. But my belief is that starting with, although not, it is challenging to put the clinical development path together, which I spent a lot of time doing. But if we succeed, it lays the groundwork for many others, great companies to move into those other indications. I guess this really is brain surgery when you're thinking about the difficulty because that's required if you're going to throw a it, cell into a brain. Um, it is. It is. And we spend a lot of time with neurosurgeons as I like to often kid them, you know, um, I'm trying to make this treatment that you're going to be a part of idiot proof. So that's why we're working together. Uh, I'm, I'm sure most of the surgeons who are doing these are not actual idiots in any case, but uh, no, I, I get no, it. <laughs> no, it's it's done with tongue and cheek. They're, no, they're, yeah, I'm well aware. Well aware. So curious, because you've obviously been in this space for a while, and I would argue are, is the leader in, in this space, having been a founder of Aspen Neuro and now working to found RhineBio. I'm curious how you think about the different approaches. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, there is the Blue Rock data. There are several companies operating in this space. How do you think about the different approaches uh, and why you decided to go after uh, an aloe-based approach? Yeah, uh, well, first and importantly, um, I came on as Aspen's CEO when it was already founded. Okay, uh, sorry. Yeah, and Andres brought Liao, but um, I drove the... Uh, the company through its A-rays and also had a fairly, um, I think, substantial uh, role to play with regard to the development of not just the initial thought, but as you think on follow-on products. So the, the issue really uh, most easily framed is that everyone thinks that the big challenge in putting an aloe product into the body is immunological. And so if you start with a cell from the, you know, the patient and you could then um, reproducibly produced an IPSC from that, whether it's blood or skin derived, uh, that reprogrammed cell could be the ideal substrate upon which you could then develop a dopaminergic progenitor that could go into the brain. The, the, the challenges, as you might imagine with any of these, but specifically for IPSCs, is you're making a product that's only for one patient yeah. every time. And so there's the autologous IPSC to be clear, because it's yeah, from that exactly. patient. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. from the time you biopsy that patient to you reprogram the cells, you pick them, you genomically characterize, you differentiate them. It's months. Um, Parkinson's fortunately doesn't progress that rapidly, but it's a, it's a period of time. Um, the second, which is often thought to be the, the sine qua non of autologous, which I think is yet to be proven clinically, is that the presumption that the cells coming from the same person will not be immunologically recognized, I think hasn't been proven in, in really? the clinic. Yeah, it has not been proven. 
For solid organs, we know that if you do HLA matching, um, and this is the basis for hearts, liver, lungs, kidneys, um, you get really good engraftment and good take of that, uh, of that organ. But the issue really with regard to the skin or the blood is whether they've acquired uh, by virtue of being in a skin case exposed to radiation, for example, UV, and may have an accumulation of some subtle defects at the genomic level that may actually cause them no longer to be pristine and be identical to what might be the cell that initially nucleated and became the, that person. Um, and then the second, which I think has also uh, been considered, but I think the data are still not there, is whether um, because the cells that come from a reprogrammed skin cell, for example, may be accumulating mitochondria that may not be of a perfect singular class. They're called heteroplasmic. So you have different types of mitochondria, some with a shorter genome, some with the normal genome. Is there the propensity to have some new antigen be expressed that had gone unrecognized? So I, I think this will actually bear out in clinical development because the autologous people are not going to immunosuppress. And all of us in the allogeneic world are going to immunosuppress. And I think that the, the clinical outcomes will in part relate to that, but I think it, it will also relate to the quality of the cell that you start with, the history of the patient, which isn't something that's important. When you look at E at like Blue Rock, you mentioned at the beginning, they, we're so happy, big, big kudos to, to Blue Rock, but it's an ESC product. So you don't know a lot about the source of that material. You certainly don't know the, the clinical history of a patient who donated a cell from which you made an IPSC. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a completely different starting point. But I think um, at the end of the day, if autologous works, it'll be more boutique-ish because it's really hard to scale. Um, although there may be innovations that may make me say I'm just wrong. But I think as I understand it now, it's challenging. But if you have a product that has quality starting with the source, you can manufacture it, you can cryopreserve it, and ultimately you can deliver it reproducibly, I think you, you're in a position for the first time to think about scaling to the number of patients that might qualify for this therapy. And in our estimation, it's somewhere one and a half million in multiple different markets. Yeah, you just anticipated a question I didn't even prepare <laughs> in advance. It was, yeah. how do you think about the commercial differentiation? Because you might have to immunosuppress, which might limit the uptake in an allo system, but an auto approach might limit the amount of patients that can be treated to only the most severe with the most neurological loss or most physical manifestations because of the cost. Because you can't afford the typical right. auto approach for, right. um, you know, 1.1 million patients. So, right. how do you right. think about those trade-offs commercially yeah. with the patients? Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great question, and has uh, several different um, you know features that I can just uh, sequentially unpack. Uh, the the first the first is um, the um, the issue of immunosuppression. There will be people who um, have contraindications to immunosuppression, and they may also have Parkinson's disease. And so a referring neurologist might say to their patient, well, there's this clinical trial being done by this autologous stem cell company, 
Uh, you can't be a minister. So maybe that's the right thing if you're contemplating volunteering to be a research participant in a clinical trial. Um, on, on the other hand, I think the pharmacoeconomics, you know, I'm just, this is just really the, our current extrapolation is that the ability to scale since PD is the second most common neurodegenerative disease and its incident rate is increasing. It seems very hard to believe that an autologous, even a really robust autologous manufacturing process can take on that at scale. So I think that then it comes to the payers, you know, and, and I used to run a health system, so I'd had to deal with payers all the time. And, you know, the proof of a benefit to a payer, whether it's CMS or it's a commercial payer, has to be there. Yeah. You have to be able to be able to say from patient to patient to patient who meet our criteria and who we treat, we expect this benefit. And I think that that's likely to be best stated although data would need to support it, that if the product is identical and you understand it and it's manufacturing and it's potency, it's likely to produce more consistent benefit. So in that setting, if I'm correct, then I think payers would be much more likely to say, we, we would consider reimbursing for this. So is your assumption that it's going to be comparable efficacy across all these products, but just differential safety and cost profiles? Or is there a reason to believe that your consistency with manufacturing or source of uh, mitochondria or whatever might have better efficacy? I, I, I think the lead optimization, you know, that was done by our partner before we formed Rhine uh, was critical. It was a, a corporate effort to really understand how to produce in a very consistent manner, cells that were identical to those that are lost in Parkinson's. And they really nailed it. Uh, the fact that they can produce it at scale is a major, major benefit as we think about this going beyond phase two and into a pivotal trial and hopefully a BLA. But um, I think the variability on, in terms of potency will, will be understood in clinical development. And I suspect that there will be differences. How robust those differences will be, Jeff, I'm not certain, but I have good reason to think that it will not just be related to how many cells you put in, but it will in part be related to the, the cell that you started with, an ESC, an IPSC, or an autologous IPSC, just to be complete. Um, and that's the excitement that we'll see play out, I think, in the next five years. We're going to know the answer. Yeah. And look, it sounds like there's going to be room for multiple players. There's so many patients, yes. so much unmed need. To your yes. point, some might not be able to take immunosuppression. Yes. You know, other allo products or I guess auto products might be relevant for, for them. Hopefully, yes. I guess from your perspective, the uh, your approach will be able to capture the majority of the market. But there's definitely going to be room for multiple players. And if this works... In Parkinson's, presumably this could work in many other neurological applications. Is that your thesis? Yes, it, it is. And, you know, I, I think the the answer is that there will be uh, room for a lot of players here. Um, and as we start to expand the indications, you know, for example, you know, there are Parkinson's patients who develop dementia. And some of them uh, develop their Parkinson's disease because they might have a loss of function. Um, of a, an enzyme, like this enzyme that encodes, uh, it's called glucocerebrositis. Well, one interesting question, since everyone focuses, as are we now currently on repairing the motor or reconstituting the motor circuitry, can we actually take on more than that? 
And so those are the next generation. Those are sort of in the adjacencies. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about gene editing uh, when I took the reins of Brooklyn because there was a cytokine company. I spent uh, the better part of a half a year learning what everyone was doing. Um, and ultimately, we acquired a company that really did great gene editing uh, with a set of technologies that are not part of the, those that mostly are known in you know, CRISPR, et cetera, uh, Editas. Um, but I think those next generation products will expand the clinical indication space. And I think eventually one of the things that has to be done is we have to have a cell-based therapy approach that can deal with the chronic neural inflammation. So I think that's big and it will apply to more than just PD for sure. Interesting. So when I'm thinking about the the landscape of therapies, I'll just keep it in Parkinson's for here. Obviously there's all kinds of uh, L-DOPA replacements. There's really no disease modifying therapy out there. Obviously deep brain stimulation does have you know, benefits, but that's not a, uh, you know, a therapeutic. Um, thinking through all the different approaches that one could go after, whether it's a, a gene therapy approach, small molecules, or, or cell therapies, is it a function of when in the disease progression to use what? Or do you think that the cell therapy approach could be used a lot earlier to forestall a lot of the negative impact of the disease and allow a longer, healthier lifespan? Yeah, so I, I think that my general thesis is yes, they could be used earlier, but you have to prove that it's safe and well tolerated, probably not at the beginning of disease. So sure. I anticipate, as we understand from Blue Rock, is you're not going to be tr uh, transplanting patients who re recently diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and in time, when safety, tolerability, and proof of clinical benefits have been established in moderate or moderate severe pa patients, then I think your question is front and center. How early should this be offered? Uh, and will it make the management of those patients, even though the cost of the procedure relative to their early clinical management may be quite different from a pharmacoeconomic perspective, it may actually so alter the trajectory of their progression that the quality of life will overwhelmingly be better. And so if I was in a conversation with the CMS administrator, that would be a point that I think would come up fairly early on. If we're successful and we can rebuild the circuitry, and in younger patients, this might actually change the next four decades or five decades of their life. I think there's something to be said for contemplating why the indic indication space or the or the label, as it might be post-BLA, might be broad. Yeah, so it makes total sense. It, it sounds like you guys are at the forefront of this, given there's a lot of approaches, but you, you have the best benefit of cost of goods, broad applicability, uh, homogeneity of the of the product, et cetera, with the liability of the um, the conditioning and in the, and the uh, I, I guess the, uh, uh, the the ongoing immunosuppression. Is there a next gen that you would envision that would uh, allow to not need the conditioning and immunosuppression? or how do you think about kind of the yeah. ultimate product? Yeah, so um, we're not going to suppress our patients forever. And so the, the regimen that I've built um, is one that we know how to taper. Um, and uh, I've now been in discussions with many transplant, solid organ transplant immunologists. It's very well accepted and, and managing the risks, including opportunistic infections and, and side effects are going to be easier because we're probably going to aim for a lower dose than would be required if you're going to do like a, uh, a kidney and a pancreas, for example. 
Um, but your question is really important. So there, there are a handful of um, entities, some academic, some industrial, that are now thinking about, well, um, now that we know that we can edit without substantial, if any, off-target, should we be deleting or, or effectively removing the most potent of the HLA genes? Those are the highly polymorphic genes. Um, and should we deal then subsequently with another edit to prevent NK recognition? And I, th I think that uh, that will play out, I think, in the clinic. Um, I feel very hesitant putting a cell that can't be surveilled in the brain because you can't go and biopsy it easy, easily. And so, you know, as a company, we, we, we are taking what we think is the safest approach, what we know now. And as other entities uh, will develop these cloaked IPSCs that could be used for a variety of indications, yes, we would certainly examine them. But right now, that would not likely be something that we'll do in the in the near term. Got it. So, actually, I didn't fully appreciate that. That ultimately, long term, this can be incredibly safe. It's just the short term transplant around that window where exactly. it's going to be the you know more problematic compared to an an auto approach. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 the fact that um, we're you know. The, the thing that saved transplantation early days, particularly for livers, is that they figured out how to measure rejection before it really occurred. So at the, the sort of more incipient stage, and it was just doing blood tests. And so we we, we wound up exploring and we'll uh, launch an effort to see whether we too can find a means by which we can measure in the blood something that tells us about the brain's transplant. Got it. So... To make sure I heard you right, so your view on the kind of future of cell therapy in CNS is thinking about the right edits to various HLA subtypes or way, making ways to make it more or less immunogenic. Are there any other things that could be done in this realm that would be like the holy grail for uh, CNS cell therapy? Well, you, you, you know well that um, there have been efforts, uh, including that uh, Jun Takahashi's leading in, uh, in Japan, where they're using HLA-matched or partially matched um, iPSCs. So it, it is not beyond the reason um, that one could not look at HLA homozygous lines uh, that would match the entire U.S. population. Um, and so uh, we're fortunate to you know, sort of be the beneficiary of a lot of work that was done by our partner, uh, where they've actually already made such lines. Um, and so the one that we are moving forward happens to be HLA matched to 11% of the U.S. population by public data. And so in, in my extreme um, uh, answer to your question is that maybe it'll be possible that we have a whole library of iPSCs that can be brought off the shelf. They're already cryopreserved. Um, and you may even make uh, dopaminergic progenitors from each one. So if someone comes in, they go through HLA matching. Um, and then the nature of the transplant is a little different than what we're planning on doing, where everyone will get immunosuppressed for some period of time. Got it. Okay. So, but you wouldn't expect if you're only matched to 11% that you're only going to be treating those 11% to your point. Uh, we're going to treat, we're going to treat all comers independent. We'll, we'll do HLA haplotyping and 
we, we, we don't expect, um, certainly in early clinical development, for there to be a change in our strategy. I'm just answering your question yeah. is that in the future, yeah. it might be possible uh, that one could actually um, be able to systematically offer to any patient with their HLA the right starting material. How many cell lines would that be, just out of curiosity? Well, if if you do the calculations, it's fewer than 10. Oh, wow. That would be a lot more. That's interesting. Cool. Well, this is fascinating to me. I, I really appreciate you sharing. I just have kind of one last question. Obviously, it's yeah. been a very challenging biotech market the last, call it, two years. Yeah. Uh, we have other perspectives on the market that probably aren't in the immediate term so positive, but certainly at Locus Walk, we believe the mid to long term is still very right for, for biotech. I'm curious about your views on uh, the overall uh, optimism that you might share on you know, the market and just any concluding thoughts you'd have. Yeah, well, I, I remain you know, very bullish on the future of biotech to change the face of medicine and eventually make it so personalized and bring new therapeutics that um, even currently we would imagine today um, in indications where there's little we can and do that in the near to midterm is going to be actually something that will be revolutionary for patients, not just in the in the brain, but elsewhere. And I think that that's going to be uh, incredibly important for for ultimately how we care for patients and bring quality of life back to those who suffer from chronic diseases. Um, the frothiness of the capital markets are well recognized. I actually think that we're we're exiting a, a period that is unprecedented in part owing to the derivatives of COVID-19. Um, and as we get our, an understanding of how to then uh, retool to operate in an environment that may be slightly different than pre-COVID, I think we will get back to something that will reasonably approximate where we are. Right now, it still remains a bit more challenging than it was pre-COVID. Uh, but I think there's uh, there's certainly considerable enthusiasm on the part of investors to make investments, and they're hoping that um, where they choose to invest will actually produce returns that will be uh, substantive. So net-net, um, I'm very positive, I'm very positive and optimistic. But I think patience is really the most important thing that we have to remind ourselves about in, in environments such as this. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think what I've learned also from this market is that things that are truly innovative and move the needle are actually getting funded despite the downturn. It's things yeah. that are more me too or yeah, less sure. innovative that are that are struggling more. Yeah, yeah good point. I, I, I don't have the perspective that you do, but that makes sense to me. Yeah, well, I would definitely put Ryan in in uh, the category of most innovative, uh, at least from what I could see. But Howard, thank you for your time. This has been amazing. I really enjoyed Learning more from you, you, not just about your biotech journey, but about Ryan and the IPS space and in the neuro in the neurology area, which is something that is a very emerging field. So thank you for sharing and enlightening us as frankly one of the most uh, expert guys in the planet doing what you're doing. So um, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Biotalk. We look forward to continuing a productive dialogue in our next episode. Please share with all your friends and colleagues so we can grow the audience. This is Jeff Meyerson for Biotalk, signing off.